One of the most photographed locations in our world today is the ancient Temple Mount in Jerusalem taken from the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. Who hasn't seen a picture of the golden dome of the rock that dominates the landscape of Jerusalem? However, even though many people have seen a picture of that mosque, very few know how it got there. Allow me to fill in the historical background. In approximately 63 B.C., the mighty Roman Empire conquered the world and was in power during the New Testament era. The Jewish people were in the land of Israel at that time, but they and the land were basically controlled and dominated by Rome. Needless to say, the Jewish people did not like being controlled and dominated by the Roman Empire. So from time to time, they would resist and carry out revolt. In A.D. 66, over 30 years after Jesus had died, resurrected, and ascended, Rome decided to stamp out Jewish rebellion in Israel once and for all. They started in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, then on to Samaria, Perea, Idumea. It took over two years to successfully carry out these operations. Then in A.D. 70, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, decided to go after Jerusalem. After a nearly two-year lull, Vespasian sent his son Titus with four legions and auxiliary troops, approximately 80,000 soldiers, to bring Jerusalem to submission. After weeks of assault, Jerusalem fell. The temple was burned and destroyed on the 9th of Av, about August 28th, in that year. According to Josephus, over a million Jews perished in the assault on the city of Jerusalem. The survivors were taken captive to work as slaves, and the city was leveled. The Jewish resistance didn't stop at that point, however. The fighting dragged on another three years until the Romans captured the remote mountain fortress of Masada. Once Rome conquered Masada, that was it. The Jews were dispersed from their land to live in various places throughout the world, many of whom settled in modern-day Europe. Now, fast forward about 500 years to the year A.D. 570. That was the year Muhammad was born in Mecca, Arabia. Muhammad, of course, was the founder of Islam. In time, he was able to establish a theocratic Muslim state that soon engulfed all of Arabia and large parts of North Africa and Western Asia. Shortly after his death, the city of Jerusalem was captured in A.D. 638. Fifty-three years after that, in A.D. 691, the famous Dome of the Rock was built on the site of the ancient temple. The Dome of the Rock is built over the spot where Muslims believe Muhammad ascended in the night on a journey to heaven. According to Islamic teaching, that makes Jerusalem their third holiest site in all the world, just behind Mecca and Medina. That's how the Dome of the Rock came to stand on top of the ancient Temple Mount. There are actually two mosques on top of the Temple Mount. There is the Dome of the Rock, which is somewhat centrally located, 
And there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the southern end of the ancient Temple Mount. That is the mosque in which Muslims worship today because the Dome of the Rock is primarily just a monument to Islam. It's not an active mosque. So two mosques sit on top of the ancient Temple Mount. But did you know that the day is coming when there will be another Jewish temple on top of that site? The Word of God is clear on that fact. We don't know exactly where it will be located, but we do know that there will be another temple there someday. In fact, there is a group in Jerusalem right now called the Third Temple Treasury that has already made all the garments and all the implements necessary to have a functioning temple. I have been to their location in the Jewish quarter of the old city on several occasions, and I've seen the items with my own eyes. There will be another Jewish temple on the Temple Mount someday. We are told about it in Revelation chapter 11. Turn there with me by way of introduction this morning. Before we resume our study of Mark's gospel, go over to Revelation chapter 11. And as we turn to this text of Scripture, it's important to keep in mind that John is describing facets of the future seven-year tribulation period. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Why was John instructed to measure the temple? That sounds strange or seems strange. It may be that John was instructed to measure the temple so that he would know for sure that this temple he was measuring was not the same one that was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. This is a different temple. This is the temple of the tribulation period. There is no temple in Israel today. Instead, as I stated a moment ago, there are two Muslim holy sites on top of the Temple Mount. There is the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. In fact, the Jewish people aren't even supposed to go on top of the Temple Mount area. Isn't that amazing? You could go to Jerusalem and go up on the Temple Mount area, but Jews are not supposed to. So how will it be possible for the Jews to ever build a temple there? There are two huge obstacles. One is what I just mentioned, that Jews aren't even supposed to go up on the Temple Mount area. Second, even if they were allowed, some people believe that the Dome of the Rock occupies the very place where the temple once stood. In recent years, however, Asher Kaufman, a godly Jewish engineer, has done exhaustive work locating the exact site of the original ancient temple. He is convinced and is in turn convincing many others that the temple was not built on the same place where the Dome of the Rock now stands, but slightly north of the Dome of the Rock. In fact, the site that he has fixed as the ancient temple site is still an area of open ground upon which a single small shrine called the Dome of the Spirits now stands. If he is correct, it would then be possible for the Jewish temple to be reconstructed 
on its original site without disturbing the Dome of the Rock. Listen to this quote by Ray Stedman. This raises an interesting possibility relative to the task John has been given here to measure the earthly temple. If the new temple is built north of the Dome of the Rock, as Asher Kaufman suggests it should be, the outer court of the temple would encompass the Dome of the Rock. Some Bible commentators suggest that Revelation 11:2, where John is told not to measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles for 42 months, is a reference to the area where the Dome of the Rock now stands, end quote. Now, we can't be dogmatic on all of this because it's simply an educated guess. But the fact of the matter is that there will one day be a temple on the Temple Mount area, and that temple will be there during the seven-year tribulation period. It may be built before the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period, or it may be built after the signing of the seven-year treaty that begins the tribulation. We can't say for sure, but we can say it will be rebuilt, as we will see in many passages this morning. At this very moment, there are several organizations in Israel which have zealously dedicated themselves to reconstructing the temple on Mount Moriah. One organization is training a great host of young men to be priests in the temple. These men are learning the ancient Levitical rituals, Priestly garments have been created for them to wear, pattern after what is known of the garb of the Old Testament priesthood. Without question, there are Jews in the Holy Land making full-scale preparations to put a functioning temple back on the Holy Mount. The word temple here in verse 1 is the Greek word naos, and it refers to the holy place and the holy of holies. It does not refer to the entire temple complex, just the holy place and the holy of holies. That's important to keep in mind as we come to verse 2, where John is instructed, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Forty-two months is three and a half years. That's an important time designation. As we have already seen many times in past messages, during the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, Israel, the people of Israel, will be protected and granted the right to worship in their temple. But at the midway point of the tribulation, things will change. That's when the Antichrist will begin to persecute the people of Israel, and that will take place for three and a half years. That event at the midpoint, which launches this persecution, is known as the abomination of desolation. Look at chapter 13 of Revelation, just a couple pages over, where we have a description of the Antichrist who will carry out the abomination of desolation. Chapter 13, verse 5 says of this man, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority <coughs> to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, 
and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That corresponds with what we saw back in chapter 11. That this time period will be 42 months. Three and a half years. So what do these verses tell us about the Antichrist and the future temple? They tell us that the activity of worship in the temple will take place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And the trampling underfoot of it will take place during the last 42 months. So all that to say this, there will be a temple and the Jews will worship at that temple until the abomination of desolation. Then everything will change. That is what Jesus warns about in the text to which we come this morning in Mark chapter 13. So let's go back to our study of Mark's gospel, the 13th chapter As we continue our way through Mark chapter 13, please follow along as I read verses 9 through 20, although our focus is only going to be on one verse this morning because of its importance, and that is verse 14. So especially notice that verse when we read through it. We're going to begin in verse 9 and read past verse 14 to get the full context, but verse 14 is what we really want to focus on this morning. Jesus said in verse 9, but watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be (coughs) hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of the house. And let him who is in the field not even go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, For in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. We have been looking at this chapter of Scripture for a few weeks now. It is technically known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave this message as he was sitting somewhere on the Mount of Olives, as we saw back in verse 3. 
This message was prompted by a question from the disciples regarding the culmination of all things. They wanted to know what was going to happen at the end of the age. They wanted to know what all would be involved in the culmination of all things. So here in chapter 13, Jesus tells them. Now obviously, he doesn't tell them everything about the last days or the end times, because there is much more in the book of Revelation, much in the book of Daniel, much in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, but he does give them enough to answer their questions. As we've seen over the last several messages, the focus of these words and these events is the Jewish people. That comes out once again in the verses we just read, because Jesus specifically addresses the people who are in Judea, which obviously is the land of Israel. So Jesus is telling his disciples what is going to happen with and to the Jewish people at the end of the age. They will be hated and they will be persecuted. The key event in connection with their persecution will be the abomination of desolation spoken of by Jesus here in verse 14. That phrase actually comes out of the book of Daniel. So let's turn back there to see what Jesus is referring to here in Mark 13. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9. This is a passage we come back to time and time again because it is so crucial and so key for our understanding of eschatology, or the end times. The prophecy that I'm referring to is recorded in verses 24 through 27 of Daniel chapter 9. Notice what it says. This is the angel Gabriel informing Daniel of what is going to happen in the future. He says to Daniel, 70 weeks, most of our English translations say that, it's literally in Hebrew, 70 sevens are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two sevens, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. But in the middle of the seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out, poured out on the desolate. Notice, first of all, as you try to get a handle on this prophecy, notice, first of all, that this prophecy is concerned with the people of Israel. We know that because verse 24 says, Gabriel says to Daniel that this prophecy is concerning your people, Daniel, 
your people and your holy city, which would be Jerusalem. And of course, Daniel's people is a reference to the people of Israel. The reason why I stress this is because the end of this prophecy is about the seven-year tribulation period that is yet to come. So according to this passage, the tribulation is for Israel. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it is a time of Jacob's trouble. And what's another name for Jacob? Israel. The second thing to notice about this prophecy is that it covers a specific period of time. Verse 24 says it covers 70 weeks or 77s literally in the Hebrew. So this prophecy covers a time consisting of 70 periods of seven. And it can be demonstrated, proven that the periods of seven are periods of seven years. So God says that this prophecy about Israel's future consists of 77-year periods. Do the math, it's really easy, 490 years. The third thing to notice about this prophecy, to get a handle on it, is to notice that Gabriel says to Daniel, when it's all over, once this 490-year period has come to fruition, it will cause Israel's rebellion to cease. Notice the purpose clauses in verse 24. It says that the purpose of this, 77s, for your people, your holy city, is, here's the purpose clause, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So at the end of this 490-year period, Israel, the people of Israel, will no longer be in rebellion. By the way, it's one of the reasons why we know this has not been fulfilled, because the people of Israel are in rebellion today. The vast majority of the people of Israel refuse Jesus as their Messiah. They reject Him as their Messiah. They are still in rebellion. This has not been completed. But once this prophecy has been completed, the people of Israel will no longer be in rebellion, but rather, the end of verse 24 says, the result will be everlasting righteousness. God will finally fulfill what He said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that He will save their people, redeem their people, and there will be everlasting righteousness. Now we need to see the details of this prophecy and how it unfolds. Verse 25 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. So add those two up, 69 periods of seven, 483 years. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So the starting point of this time period is when the commandment is given to rebuild Jerusalem. We know exactly when that was. It was when King Artaxerxes issued the decree to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. And the wall is even mentioned here. The street will be built again and the wall. Gabriel said from that point until Messiah would be seven sevens and 62 sevens or 69 periods of seven, 483 years. It's divided up into a period of seven sevens and 62 because it would take that first period of seven sevens, 49 years, to rebuild the wall, the temple, etc., then another 62 sevens. 
So again, you multiply it all together from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the presentation of the Messiah is 483 years. And that is the exact length of time between the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Palm Sunday. Exact length of time. 483 years to the day. Then verse 26 says, and after the 62 sevens, that is after that first 49 years, the the seven sevens, 62, after the, just say it this way, after the 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. So after his presentation, this verse says, Messiah would be cut off, he would be crucified, which is exactly what happened. Just a few days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem in fulfillment of part of this prophecy, he was cut off. He was crucified, but not for himself, not for his own sake, but for the sake of sinners. Verse, verse 26 continues, And the people of the prince who is to come. Now read this carefully. Not the prince, the people of the prince who is to come. So it's talking about a group of people. And the prince who is to come is the Antichrist who will come out of the revived Roman Empire. So the people of the prince are the Romans. So you could just read it that way. The people of the prince who is to come, or the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Which is exactly what happened in A.D. 70. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, if you're a sharp thinker, you've already realized that there is one period of seven left in this prophecy. One seven-year period. When does that begin? Verse 27 deals with that. Then he, now the he is a reference to the prince who is to come. Not the people. This is a singular pronoun referring to the antecedent, the prince. So the, the he is the prince who is to come. We often refer to him as the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. One seven year period. But in the middle of that seven, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So the he is the coming prince of verse 26, and it is none other than the Antichrist who will come out of the revived Roman Empire. He will confirm a covenant for one seven-year period, and that is the descri a description of the period that we commonly call the tribulation. So the 70th week of Daniel 9 is the seven-year tribulation period to come. At the beginning of that period, or the event that starts the clock for that final seven years, is the event of the Antichrist making some kind of treaty or covenant with Israel. It is possible, and it's my belief, it's only a personal belief, but it's possible that a part of this treaty will be the stipulation to allow them to rebuild their temple. And they can do it very quickly, right there at the beginning, as soon as that is, is, is signed. But after three and a half years, he will break that treaty. He will not allow the Jews to carry on their sacrifices in the temple. Instead, he will demand that they worship him, and he will begin to persecute them for refusing. That's part of the reason why the last half of the seven years is known as the Great Tribulation. So this is another passage in Scripture that points out the fact that there will be a temple in existence during the future seven-year tribulation period. 
Otherwise, it would make no sense for verse 27 to say that the Antichrist will bring an end to sacrifice and offering if there's no sacrifice and offering going on. So it must be going on for him to stop it. This verse also mentions the abomination of desolation, which Jesus refers to in our text in Mark 13. Skip over just a few chapters to Daniel 12, because this chapter also talks about the future tribulation period. Verse 1 says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. Now see if you recognize this wording. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Remember, Jesus used almost the identical wording in Mark 13 to refer to the tribulation period. Down in verse 11, it says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Once again, Daniel refers to the midpoint of the tribulation period when the Antichrist will stop Israel from worshiping and offering their daily sacrifices. Instead, he will present himself as God and he will desecrate the temple, here called the abomination of desolation. He will set up the abomination of desolation. So this is another reference to the fact that there will be a temple during the tribulation period. Daniel 7 tells us more about this. So back up just a few pages to Daniel 7. We'll pick up the story in verse 25 where the Antichrist, who is referred to in this chapter as the little horn, is being described. Verse 25 says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. The angel who was giving Daniel this information says that this little horn, this future Antichrist will do three things. First, he will speak great words against the Most High. Verse 8 in the, of this same chapter says the same thing about him. Daniel says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. The Antichrist will be such an egomaniac that he will have the audacity to openly defy the God of heaven and shake his fist at the God of heaven. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul says, He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's another verse which clearly indicates there will be a temple during the future tribulation period. So the first thing the Antichrist will do here in Daniel chapter 7 or described in Daniel 7 is he will blaspheme the true God of heaven. Secondly, the second thing the angel says about this man is that he will wage war against the saints. 
The book of Revelation says that many of the saints will be martyred for refusing to worship this king. At the end of verse 25, Daniel is informed that this will take place for a time, times, and half a time. In Revelation 13, we are told that this is a period of three and a half years. Time, two more times, and a half a time. Three and a half years. For the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation period, this ruler will claim to be God, and he will persecute the saints of God. And that has primary, though not exclusive, but primary reference to the people of Israel. The third action this ruler will try to do, or he will do, is to try to change the times and the laws. That is a very difficult phrase to interpret. If you research it, check the commentaries. We, we can't be dogmatic as to exactly what it is referring to, but he will try to usurp authority over two areas that are the exclusive rights of God. That's how defiant he will be. He will be the ultimate man from a human standpoint. He will be an intellectual genius. Daniel 7, 8 says he will have eyes like the eyes of a man. Eyes are used in apocalyptic literature to speak of intelligence. So he will be an intellectual genius. He will also be an outstanding orator. Daniel 7, 8 says he will have a mouth speaking great things. He will have a commanding personality, and he'll be an outstanding orator. He will be a very charismatic leader. He will also be a military genius. Daniel 7.23 says, He will devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. Clarence Larkin, in his very helpful commentary on the book of Revelation, has written this description of the future Antichrist, and I quote, He will be a composite man, one who embraces in his character the abilities and powers of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Xerxes of Persia, Alexander the Great of Greece, and Caesar Augustus of Rome. He will have the marvelous gifts of attracting unregenerate men and the irresistible fascination of his personality, his versatile attainments, superhuman wisdom, great administrative and executive ability, along with his powers as a consummate flatterer, a brilliant diplomatist, and a superb strategist will make him the most conspicuous and prominent of men. All these gifts will be conferred on him by Satan, whose tool he will be. This is why Scripture speaks of this man so often. He's all throughout the book of Daniel. He's in the book of Revelation. He's in 2 Thessalonians. He's in Matthew 24, Mark 13. Look at Daniel chapter 11. Go back to the right just a few pages. Verse 36. Here's another reference to the man we often refer to as the Antichrist. Verse 36 says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. This man will be an absolute dictator who rules with self-centered motives. He will have his way. He will not recognize any restraints, any law, or any authority higher than himself. When the Apostle Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, he calls him the man of lawlessness. Utter lawlessness. He recognizes no law, God's law, man's law. He will make all the decisions. And he will rule with such authority that he demands every person on planet earth to take his mark, according to Revelation chapter 13. 
So verse 36 says, He shall do according to His own will. He shall exalt and magnify Himself above every God. As I said earlier, He will be an egomaniac. He will claim to be, maybe even believe He is God. And verse 36 continues by saying, He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. He will be a blasphemer without equal. This facet of his personality is stated almost in every passage that refers to him. Daniel 7.25 says, He shall speak great words against the Most High. He will blaspheme in ways that are without precedent. The intensity of his blasphemy is unparalleled. And verse 36 concludes by saying, He will prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. In other words, he will only be allowed to prosper until God's chastening process of the people of Israel is done. He thinks he's great, but he's really only a puppet in the hands of Almighty God to finally bring the people of Israel to the point of letting go of their stubborn rebellion. This man is going to require Israel to worship him when they refuse He will persecute them mercilessly. And this, beloved, this is what Jesus warned about in our text in Mark 13. So let's go back there as we close the message this morning. All of this is behind what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13. He says in verse 14, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. We've seen how often Daniel's book does refer to this. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Get out of Israel, Jewish people. That's what Jesus is saying. It's interesting to note that the word standing here in this verse is a masculine participle in Greek, but it is describing the neuter noun abomination. You say, what's the point? The point is that this very unusual, you could almost say inappropriate, irregular, grammatical construction is used by Mark to emphasize the the point that the abomination that will stand in the temple is a person, not a thing. Abomination is neuter, so we might think that it'll be some thing in the temple, but the participle standing is masculine, letting us know it won't be a thing, it will be a he. He will be in the temple set himself up in the temple as God. It is the Antichrist himself. It is another indication that these words, although spoken to the disciples way back in the first century, are intended for the Jewish people who will be living during the tribulation period. We also know that because of the parenthetical comment right here in the middle of the verse, which says, let the reader understand. Some of the Jewish people 
will read these words during the future seven-year tribulation period, and they will know what to do because Jesus told them what to do. So the Jewish people are at some point facing their worst persecution ever when the Antichrist sets up in the temple the abomination that makes desolate. And God will use that persecution to finally bring his chosen people to repentance so they will embrace their Messiah, Jesus. That's what it will take to get them to repent and believe in Jesus. What about for you? What will it take to bring you to the point where you are willing to surrender your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? I pray it won't take a catastrophe. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As we bow here in the last minute or two remaining, if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, then I urge you to face that question. What will it take? What is it going to take for you to finally surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? We've seen this morning what it's going to take for the Jewish people as a whole to finally get to that point. I pray it won't take a catastrophe, but that, as Romans 2 says, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. You will respond to the goodness of God and come to repentance. Father, it it amazes us to look at your word and to see what all you have said and to think that your care and concern for your chosen people Israel is such that you've even warned them this far in advance about what is coming someday, lest they be annihilated. And we know that you will carry out your plan and bring the people of Israel to repentance and to faith in Messiah Jesus. And Father, we pray that for each and every one of us in this room that that we have already come to that point. And if there is someone present who has not, Father, do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to bring that man or woman to faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.